Hey, Javier, how are you doing? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, so sounds good. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> no, you're good. I was confused. <laughs> That's very strange. I'm really, I've not encountered that before, but oh well. <laughs> I'm glad it's working <laughs> on your laptop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the OG Rose Anchor podcast. I'm really, really honored, really pleased to have you here and to get to talk with you a little bit about um, your philosophy of timing. I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a micro chat, but um, I, I'm still excited to talk with you about just some of those ideas, like kind of where that arose for you. And I know that you and I have been talking a little bit back and forth, an excerpt from Caputo, which might be interesting to re relate subjectivity to time. Um, so yeah, let's start with with um, the the series you're doing on the philosophy of timing. Everyone should go and check that out on your YouTube channel. But yeah, what? How did that kind of arise for you, Javier? Uh, well, I mean, it, it kind of arose from Cadell's kind of philosophy portal project of you know the Nietzsche seminars, um, where we had to present. Um, by the end of the Nietzsche course uh, on our ideas about Nietzsche and spiritual leadership. Uh, and I had presented a topic on tension relativity, what I end up calling dancing kenosis. But I think that idea has evolved into what we're now calling the philosophy of timing, um, mainly because the issue that I saw in my tension relativity thing was that you know how how do we determine when uh, when we make releases or should make releases, um, and so it involved this notion of timing rather than uh, time. And so I've been talking a lot about that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's so true that like philosophy does seem to focus so much more on time itself. You know, being in time. Just thinking about Heidegger, for example. You know, it's it's it does sort of focus on that, but it doesn't always focus on timing itself. Maybe because that is more in flux, or it seems more in flux, or something like that. Whereas, if we could just sort of understand time in general, we'd maybe like not have to deal with some of the uncertainties that timing could could afford. Um, why do you think that philosophy, like it's what? Why do you think timing hasn't really been um, addressed so much in philosophy? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I think I think it's I, th I think some of the understanding is like if you understand time, then you can just sort of understand the way things unfold mm -hmm. and make decisions, possibly. But it, it does make me wonder whether philosophy has really considered not just about you know us as beings, but how we make decisions and i think timing has a lot to do with decision making uh in our lives you know when when do we take a risk when do we um discard something go for something else uh there seems to be a sort of even a language hidden in, in all of that um something that i, I talked about that the nature of you know, the, the word when um, seems to be a powerful indicator for, you know, why we should do this or when um, we should move to the next thing. Yeah, that's that's really good. I think I think you're quite right with what you're saying, you know, that there's there's something, though, about time, like in, in terms of the, the way that it's discussed on a philosophical level that can can make it feel so much so much more abstracted from our everyday life but timing to me sort of is almost a seems to be an avenue to actually restore actually a connection between philosophy and, and everyday life because we do all deal so much with timing and decision making you know um whereas time can kind of be felt as like this out there i don't know sort of like abstraction you know and and sometimes it is just very fairly talked about that way but if we bring it into timing, well, then it's like it just becomes so much more relatable on a on a very daily, like on a daily level or like daily experience. Um, 
so I think that's why I think that's why it's such a I've really enjoyed the series so much because of that. Um, but I was thinking about like the your concept of Gwen and I I felt like um yeah that's that's so 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 fascinating because it almost makes me think that we as humans seem to always be in some sort of state of anticipation. Like, oh, when is this gonna happen? When is that going to happen? And so um I guess I'm just thinking about this idea of related to timing where you, you kind of talk about this as related to Kukudo with the perhaps and sort of the, the hope against hope where there's, it's almost like the one is always happening and never happening or, or something like that, you know? Um, do you, do you think that's true about the when, or would you sort of articulate it differently? Yeah, I, I think my, my, my understanding of when is, very similar to Computo's like uh, insistence of perhaps, yeah. Uh, because what I realize, and I, I don't know, maybe it's like a preference of mine mm -hmm. that I prefer maybe when rather than perhaps. Uh, and of course, I'm still trying to understand Caputo's thought in, in relation to this, so I could be wrong. But I do like the the nature of when because when tends to capture this sort of insistence you know even when we say things to each other like oh when are you going to do the dishes or you know when is this ever going to happen it's 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 a you're being addressed and and you can feel the demand and the anxiety of of a call to do something and yet it's sort of open-ended right it's and then also at the same time it, it is only a matter of when and we don't really know exactly when <laughs> um okay. and even when we do the things uh that we say we're gonna do uh, we're always sort of haunted by this when um because when we make decisions we cut lines uh in time saying that okay this is what it is um however that's sort of like an objectification of when, you know? Um, and I think I, I alluded to like shame being this kind of like thing where it's like we objectify when, um, you know, if something occurs in your life uh, and you're like, oh, that's it, it's over. It's, you know, it's, um, the when has arrived, you know, my embarrassment, my, my foolishness, whatever the case may be it's you know it's done i'm ashamed um however because you know time always continues on it's hard to actually dictate uh if that was actually true or not that experience in in, the, in terms of if we look back or we look forward you know uh, five ten years from now are you really going to feel as ashamed as you did yeah. back then or you're gonna look at it like oh that was kind of silly that i felt embarrassed at that moment i mean it was embarrassing but really like i made it bigger than it was it, it wasn't really like the end of my world if that happened to me um or maybe or maybe in fact it, it turned out to the better i mean it's it's such an open-ended experience when stuff like that happens to us or even when we make decisions it's sort of very open-ended um, when we decide to determine and interpret said experiences. Um, so in that case, I, I do think it's very similar to Caputo's open-ended, um, this haunting of perhaps that yet never comes or never arrives. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Thank you. Thank you for fleshing that out. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting even with like what it's, I like that idea of like objectifying when and it seems like I guess I was just thinking about it just on a very, you know, just thinking about times when, oh, I, I don't know, like when, like my brother, like my brother would be like, so when are you going to go back for a master's? You know, just things like that. When people kind of give some insistence on you should be doing this or you should be doing that. A lot of times it comes with a when, you know, because people maybe think you're not doing kind of what you should be doing when you should be doing it, et cetera. And I guess to me, it makes me think that at least I, somehow I sort of find a uh, relief in the way Caputo and the way you've expressed how he is framing the one, because 
it kind of brings it more into the subjective actually. And in realizing that it, it's sort of like, well, what is that, you know, what does that when refer to exactly, right? Because even if you were to actually, like, let, let's say, uh, like with my brother example of, you know, going to get a master's in English or something, you know, it's like, well, the when is referring to some sort of uh, accolade, but it has to do with something more about like trying to be happy or be, you know, fulfilled or do something with your talents or something like that. But that kind of assumes a, that a particular oh, when would have, would fulfill that. Um, so, sorry, just one second. I'll be right back. Okay, sorry, thank you for your patience. Um, so yeah, basically just that, like, it kind of assumes that if you were to do it in a certain when, that you would, uh, like, achieve the goal, you know what I mean? And uh, I, I feel like that objectifies the when because it sort of makes it very, you know, certain that, well, when you do it this uh, at, in this timing, you would be happy or you would be, you know, you'd be using your talents, whatever you want to say, you know? And uh, I think that this idea of kind of bringing when more into the subjective and realizing that it's not... It, it doesn't actually hold the clarity that we think it does, you know, <laughs> like to think about it as, you know, uh, very linear and very much like when as something that's accomplished, it's like, well, because time does continue on and on and on, you know, there's always like a new when, you know, <laughs> there's always like another when that, that arrives. And so I guess what you mean to say is that it's interesting to me because this idea of kind of bringing it into more of the perhaps is, is kind of alleviating because then it doesn't make it so much about like, oh, I missed my window. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I missed my window to, to do this or to do that because it sort of shows that we actually often objectify when, when it's actually hyper, hyper subjective in a sense, you know? Um, I don't know if that made any sense, but it's kind of like, it, there's something that feels sort of redeeming about this idea of perhaps, even though I know it seems so uncertain and like maybe that seems destabilizing or uncomfortable for most people who rely on sort of objectifying when, but in some ways it's like, there's a lot of redemption there. Cause even in the example of the shame, right? There's like in time, it, it, it is somewhat ameliorated, right? Because it's not the final when of that, that of the person's existence, right? So um, yeah, I just, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think that's pretty correct. I, I mean, we, we do have this tendency to always cut cut those lines and, and be like okay but but it ironically when when people say when it's often an indicator of their values you know um which is very interesting um and i and i had made this mention too with you know is there ever a right time um the notion of a right time is not an actual notion of time but more of an indicator of conditions that we value that we want to satisfy you know if if somebody wants to uh, if somebody asks me to the movies and i feel like i'm not in the mood then it's not that it's the wrong time it's just that i value the condition of my mood over going to the movies in this case um however the very complicated factor is that if somebody says, okay, do you want to go to the movies? I'm like, no, I'm not in the mood. But then someone says, hey, um, I know you're not in the mood, but your favorite movie is actually out today. Um, that might make me, you know, that might make me switch, actually. That might put me in a good mood all of a sudden. <laughs> that might perk my ears up a little bit like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know it was that movie that was out today. Um, so there's always this sort of, complex uh interrelational subjectivity going on even with uh our notions of like right timing or or something like that i mean uh it, it can easily be skewed and, and sometimes what i always try to get at is that it really is open-ended uh i what's ironic is that if i were to paint this 
scenario another way, right? You get asked to the movies and you know, you say, no, you're not in the mood. And someone says, okay, what's, what's funny about that relation with that interaction is that you actually think it was your decision, but the, the other person sort of um, conceded to your, to your valuing of the mood. He sort of said, okay, you're not in the mood. Okay, cool. He, he didn't push any further. The other person in the other example did. He pushed further. He, he pushed towards something that perhaps you didn't take account of, mm. right? You didn't take account of this factor when you made your decision about yeah. saying that it's the wrong time. Um, so, so with, you know, being in relationship with other people, there's always something that we can't possibly account of. And, and the same thing with when is that when gets really complex because, um, because we are beings in time and, you know, it, it's possible that you could value um, maybe getting a house at a specific time. Um, but that's because you assume exactly what you value, right? You assume that this is exactly what you want. Um, however, there is nothing that detracts from the possibility of you being shown a house that you would have liked that would have been available later on if you would have just waited like two or three more months. You know, there, there's, there's nothing that detracts from that possibility um, and that open-endedness of when. So sometimes it really does put into question a lot of the things that we value a lot of the things that we dictate as the right time as the wrong time it, it it very much even has to do with you know the way your husband daniel garner sort of like points out like you know values is really the driving like force of the way we organize our mind and, and decision making yeah. uh, skills in this case yeah that was that was really good and and i think you're you're quite right on uh, what Daniel will emphasize about values, and he also will emphasize conditionality, you know, and I think that's, that's a, a really, that's a really great example, um, when you're talking about the friend in the movie and everything, because, um, you know, or two people discussing whether to go, you know, to the proposition, would you, you want to go to the movies, because <clears throat> you said something like, you think it's your own decision, right, but the person conceded, they said, like, oh, okay, they, you know, they recognize that you weren't, but the yeah. other person, like in another scenario, the person says like, well, it's actually your favorite movie. You know, it's like just it just came out, blah, blah, blah. So I thought like that really struck me, Javier, because it was it sort of made me realize like, huh, it often we do have this sort of I want to say it, it feels like a little bit of like autonomous. I don't know if it's rationality or if we want to say like it's very individualistic, like the sense that we make our own decisions, you know, <laughs> and like in a sense we do. But you know, it, in that example, it made me realize that it's actually more complex than just that. It's not, you know, because we, it's not, it's actually not just a singular decision, you know, like, as in, it's not just that the one person made a decision. Yes, they did ultimately, but there's sort of this strange sort of call and response or something that occurs where in a way it was still, it was kind of a, a mutual arrival or something like that at some some decision you know so I guess it just made me think of like how that that does complexify making decisions you know you know for oneself I think for a lot of like life we often think about it in terms of just being autonomous you know like I think about myself in my 20s and it's just like oh I was just I just basically made decisions for myself you know and even those though were not, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of, that example reveals to me how it's like, actually that was never really the case. I just sort of felt that it was or thought that it was, um, but it becomes so much more evident in family context or family friends in like the group settings and whatnot, where you're, where it's even more evident, like, oh, right. My decisions aren't, aren't just like my own. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, do you think it's true that we kind of get the illusion that we do make our own independent decisions or would you push back and say like, no, we do still make our own independent decisions. What do you think on that? I, I think, um, so this is like an interesting kind of like combination of like determinism and free will. Cause I've been thinking mm -hmm. of the notion of like interval. Mm -hmm. um, interval is a very interesting motion because you can repeat the same 
uh, note, right? But you can always do something like this, right? You can go tap, 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 and then you can go tap, tap, tap. So there, there seems to be, um, and I, and I think intersubjectivity is kind of like that, where you, you're wanting to do this kind of repetition, you know, like I just want to go back to my room and read and do whatever, but the in the the complex interrelationship with things and people and family and friends and everything else is that they always propose like an alternative interval mm -hmm. you could say to respond and live your life um but in terms of you know are we genuinely making our own decisions um i don't know i mean it, it's because it, it gets really complicated in the sense of you know if you really think about it and, and if we really take seriously conditions, um, most people think that they can just go to their room and just read silently whenever they want to. But if you really think about it, um, that isn't actually the case because one, if you live in a house of people, you have to think about how those other people actually allow you that free time to sit in your room and read silently. You know, yeah. there's a sort of yeah. like respect in that sense where mm -hmm. it's like I, I cater to your time because I, I know that you enjoy your time for yourself and to read by yourself and having that kind of enjoyment. So that that's the kind of complex thing that's going on, even though we can feel that it's it's a uh, you know, it's my decision that I, I want to read in my room. But if you have children, <laughs> is it? necessarily your decision until they you know come in your room and they're like hey like you know i destroyed the bathroom like you know it's 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 not our decision i mean i I'd rather think of i mean i almost feel like decisions are um not even a, a great word anymore i almost feel like it, it's like what is happening is that we are constantly insisted upon and we have to respond. And it's really complex because what's going on is that your response is also an insistence, right? Mm -hmm. You going into your room reading by yourself is an insistence that you wish to be, uh, you know, remain alone. Yeah. However, if someone barges in your room and something happens, now there is an insistence upon you to respond to what is going on outside of that room. Um, so we're constantly being addressed. We're constantly being insisted upon. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I would only say that, in essence, we are just constantly being demanded to respond. And, and that's where I would kind of, uh, I guess, put in the container of like free will and decision making is that decision making is because and it is predicated on the fact that we are always insisted and addressed by things and people and society and everything else. Yeah, no, that, that was really good. I, I'm, yeah, it seems like it's almost better to, I like the interval concept too. And that made me think that it is ultimately kind of a type of, a type of dance, a type of call and response, a type of, you know, demanding and like insisting and responding. And I, I think that's interesting too. The, I think that's such a great example of, you know, going to one's room to read alone. Um, because like, it's weird. It's very, it's a silent, it's, well, it's pr pretty much a silent act, but it says something still, right? It doesn't, it communicates something to other people <laughs> that one goes and it like closes their door and has time in their room, you, you know? And it's just, that's, that's really, that's interesting. And I do kind of wonder if because, I don't know. It it does make me wonder, you know, we live in a rather connected time, you know, everyone basically can connect to the like the world wide web at their fingertips and but it's like it's weird. I feel like we should be more aware of this interrelated subjectivity or, you know, this this idea that we're always kind of insisting and being demanded to respond. And yet I wonder if like it if we actually grow somehow unaware more so like ironically or something like there's a paradox happening where we're more connected than maybe we have been but somehow we don't under we don't maybe see or realize the 
the inter interconnected or like you know interrelated subjectivity because I don't know maybe because like behind a phone one can be uh, more or less um, maybe unaware just because it's not necessarily a logical connection so it's it makes one less aware of the dominoes or whatever like the what they're insisting by what they do or or something like that um, I don't know do you think that's is something that you think might be happening or no uh, regarding like the internet and and everything because I don't know it's sort of strange for it's it's like not strange but it's just it's it's kind of like this very profound understanding of of correlation and, and relation to one another um, and and it's like something I didn't really quite think about maybe 10 years ago but I know very like vividly now more so but it's just it just makes me wonder because a lot of times the internet land sort of just quite literally like a screen is flat right so it's like it does show three-dimensional images and such and and you know there's the dynamic of of responding and and engagement and stuff like that but there's still something that I wonder if it's sort of I don't know maybe there's kind of like this oh well everything's already connected through the web or through the internet so we don't it's almost more like there's a chain and there's links no no this is not a good example okay spider web think of a spider web there's a spider web and there's little, you know, drops of dew on the spider web. Okay. But if one drop of dew, like actually just dripped off, right. It's not there anymore. Like the web would still be fine. Right. But like, if you think of, um, you know, having some sort of, yeah, maybe the, maybe the chain could work or something. If you've got this chain, then if one of the chain links falls apart or disintegrates or whatever breaks, then like the whole thing is not connected anymore in a way. Like you feel it very vividly like that. Oh, something, something was something. Yeah, I mean, so I don't, I just, I guess I'm wondering about this, this to me, it's helpful to have the awareness of interrelated subjectivity. If how might the internet impact that <laughs> or does it, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know, maybe it doesn't, but I feel like there's kind of almost a, very reactive almost paranoid reacting and responding to one another in in the internet land or world where people can become more volatile and yet not realize that like that's that impacts like there that can still have ramifications that even though you don't see it as vividly as as logically you know so anyways thoughts there on that yeah i mean it it's I mean, for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's deeply complicated. It's, it's like the internet provides like two sides um, or multiple faces, you could say. Um, Cause there's like, in my opinion, there's like the good side, right? There's, you know, the side that we're involved in where, you know, we have these conversations and um, we have philosophy portal like Cadell's yeah. and we have Daniel's the net and yeah. um, Tim Adlin's the voice and everything like that. I mean, we have such great, yeah. Um, connections and, and relations in that case. Um, but then we have, um, you know, the other side of the web where you can find more toxic, volatile um, interactions. Um, people are willing to sort of deplatform others and um, cancel each other and everything. Um, of course, this would bring up, you know, famous Girardian concepts like mimetic theory and everything. Um, but I, I do think that what is happening, and I think Derrida and Caputo can kind of like help us a little bit here, um, is that I think the difference between these interactions is that there's a specific discourse going on. There's a, there's a, dif there's a discourse happening. Um, and that discourse manifests or forms that type of subjectivity that is arising. Um, because, you know, if we look at the conversation we're having and then, you know, Cadell's and Daniel Garner and everybody, um, you can tell that our discourse is very different. Yeah. It, it has a kind of subjectivity that's more open in comparison to that other side. I wouldn't even know what to describe that other side with. I, I don't even know what to call that, but it, it definitely is a, a form of subjectivity that is a result of using technology as the medium. Yeah. 
Um, but there is something deeply ironic about, you know, you talked about the chain breaking, right? Um, I remember being deployed in Afghanistan and we would have like um, blackout days where it's like nobody had internet. Um, it felt strange to not um, be able to just, you know, connect with my friends like at a, at any moment's notice, you know, so to speak. Yeah. So it definitely, it, you know, in, in terms of already being deployed and being distant, yeah, it actually exaggerated that distance even more in, in many ways. Um, but I, I think the problem with the internet, you could say, is that it could be it could be a problem. I'm not really sure. It could be a problem with the feature of proximity. Mm. The very fact that everything is just so immediately close, mm. um, which might even go into why we feel that we have sort of like a a sense of control because everything is literally in in a sense of your at your fingertips it, it gives you a a sense of sovereignty so to speak you, you 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 do have a sense of sovereignty and i think the movement of deconstruction is to eradicate that sense of sovereignty really yeah and that was really good i like that a lot and um it made me think about um it made me think of what you were mentioning to me about the footnote in Caputo's book. Um, oh, golly, the, t the tears. <laughs> was it the, the um, prayers and tears of Jacques Derrida? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, by Caputo, where he says here something like um, the deconstruction of the subject shows that the subject lacks the sovereignty. The spirit, the pure spontaneity and an authorial authority by which it wants to be defined. And that made me think a lot of what you just said, where there's this like sovereignty that is felt. Well, it's the same word, right? That's what you had said. Like there's a sign of air of like, there's a sense of control, right? That, that it gives us. I think when we can, I think what can temper that and allow us to be open to the really amazing sides of the internet are, are, the, are actually the deconstruction, right? And the ability to understand how little we how little we do actually control right like how how little is actually in our control um even if what feels like it is just all at our fingertips or it's always in our reach or whatever you know I mean I think that like even just concepts from Lacan about like the real and the impossibility helps us to understand this idea that even when we think something is in our reach even when we think it's in our clutches we actually don't we can't we can't get to the real like we you know there's something kind of um just futile uh, about not I don't say futile but there's an inability there there's a there's a weakness there right um there's a there's a that inability helps temper and check the usage of the internet I, I don't know but I wonder if that does help to be able to use it in ways that are really fruitful and and good and like genuine connection like you're discussing with like these types of conversations or you know the net the philosophy portal things like that Warscraft with you know, so it's, I, I think, I, I guess that is sort of like um, the whole idea of being in control is to to construct things yourself, right? Just to create your own sort of reality and, you know, like have ultimate, you know, always have ultimate control in that, right? Um, but deconstruction seeks to to do the very opposite. You know, it's like to to break down, to reveal the the you know where the weak spots are and to and press on them you know um and so yeah I guess I'm just thinking like that's that's sort of where I think perhaps it's weird like in a sense you're still sort of building genuine connections you're still so, kind of constructing things but it's like through the medium of deconstructing ideas or deconstructing it's not like you're actually deconstructing the the medium like you're not really destroying the phone or like you know getting your internet unconnected or you know but it's like this type of deconstructing within the framework of the what has been constructed so i guess what i mean to say is like there's kind of a, always a bothness there like um a, a dance of the two because even in this like passage two it says that you know derrida says to de deconstruct the subject does not mean to deny its existence so it's like there's a deconstructing not to just make it like, oh, this is not real or, or, you know, like you don't deconstruct to destroy, 
you, you know, it's sort of this, it seems to me, at least it seems that there's sort of a deconstructing to reveal or, or something like that. Um, and, and I don't know, like perhaps having like the use of deconstruction and why it would, why it feels very important to understand it more is in this ability for it to open up, actually open things up. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I have a, have a quote here. Um, it's like the page before um, that footnote mm -hmm. um, where uh, Caputo quotes, uh, I believe, Moscow. I think that's her, her name. Mm -hmm. um, it says right here, uh, this misinterpretation, and this is in reference to, uh, I believe, the idea of difference, difference mm -hmm. um, is that the misinterpretation is uh, symptomatic of certain political and institutional interests. I totally refuse the label of nihilism. Deconstruction is not an enclosure in nothingness, but an openness towards the other. Mm -hmm. So this very idea that, you know, when we talk about disconstructing, like, you know, deconstructing, like you said, right, it's not, it's not about destroying. It's about trying to keep open, trying to maintain this open endedness um, for the other. And I think, I mean, I, I think the wonderful, you know, platforms going on with, you know, Daniel and this conversation and um, Cadell's philosophy portal and everything else. Um, I think this is like the discourse that is what deconstruction would be about, you know, this openness towards the other. Um, but the, the problem, I think, and if we look at the footnote, um, Caputo talks about how, um, I, can, I can read here at the bottom, more at the bottom, it says, um, the time of the subject is a past that has never been present. The subject is antedated by systems that are older and deeper than it, by unconscious and pre-conscious forces, by systems of social and political power, by bodily forces, by the linguistic system in which we are always and already immersed. These forces at once delimit the scope of its beliefs and practices while also making them possible. Derrida's efforts are always bent towards minimizing the effects of regularizing, can't say that word, uh, subjectivity and maximizing the possibilities of alterity, um, alterity being, you know, this otherness of inventing new forms of subjectivity. So my problem with that other side of the discourse that's happening on the internet and mediums of technology is that because there is an algorithm, because there is a set algorithm, what's going on is that the algorithm eventually causes a regularity of our own subjectivity. And that doesn't allow for any new form of subjectivity to emerge. As you can see, what's going on is that the reason why we're able to have some sort of different discourse in some ways is because, one, a lot of our talks actually take place in open, um, kind of like open platforms where there isn't really a algorithm. What does that mean? Um, it means that most of the time we're having these conversations like in Zoom, recording them, then uploading them on YouTube. The, the, the effects of the algorithm is sort of like an aftermath, you could, so, you know, so to speak. We're not really um, obsessed with becoming seen, but we are more obsessed about the discourse that we're having. Yeah. Um, so, but it does seem that a lot of people, they would like for the algorithm to work in their favor. And that does manipulate a kind and form of subjectivity. And I, I recently watched um, the talk. I'm still trying to finish it. The talk with Davud and, and, and Daniel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, where they talked about there seems to be an exhaustion of creativity going on. Why is that? Well, it's because you're already labeled as an influencer, as some type of creator, right? People expect material coming out of you um you know every week or every day or something like that they you know once you start building an audience they start expecting you know material coming out of you and, and people want to keep up 
you know, getting more views on their YouTube channel or keeping up, getting more likes on their Instagram page or, or Twitter or whatever. So it, it does manipulate and form a kind of subjectivity that exhausts itself in this case, at least specifically for creator and influential type figures um, that are sort of like their whole, you know, premise or their whole construction of identities on these platforms. Um, so it, it does seem that the algorithm has solidified a kind of subjectivity. Um, and I remember, um, and, and I'll hand it off to you. I, I do remember when I got, you know, kind of big on Instagram when I was writing like all these poems, what's funny about that is that I knew what people liked. So I was doing that. So I was writing those specific poems to cater to that audience because it gave me more likes. It gave me more, um, you know, I was able to be seen. Um, eventually I got tired of doing that actually. And I decided to just, you know, drop in and do something else. And, you know, I lost all these followers. I lost all these, you know, things. Um, and it caused this sort of like, I guess, you know, identity crisis, so to speak, but it was like a really false identity. I just really missed the, you know, the dopamine dose of like getting those likes and all those kind of things. Um, but you can really see how um, in even a lot of creator influencers talk about this too. Anytime Instagram changes the algorithm, they hate it because now what it forces you to do, and Instagram is a good model of this anyways, because they've done it the most in my opinion, is that now they've gone from like reels, right? They're trying to like uh, imitate TikTok in some ways. And now that they've done reels, um, reels seems to be more of an essential part of the algorithm. Like if you're not doing reels, um, then you're not really getting or maximizing your full potential in that arena of influence for Instagram. So it is cultivating a new subjectivity, but you know, it, it's a matter of you know how soon that you will exhaust yourself in this case. Yeah, that was all really good. That was great. Um, yeah, I. I yeah, I, I love this this idea of, of you know um, these new forms. You know, it, it talks about in this in the passage about like um, where is it resituating, resituating. So it's kind of like you know deconstru it's deconstruction. This is this is Derrida. Deconstruction does not destroy the subject; it simply tries to resituate it. Right. So there's, it's like the idea of of new inventing new forms of subjectivity is that there's kind of this constant creating and destroying and creating or something like that um, of these forms of subjectivity instead of just kind of standardizing and regular regularizing them right like and that that's such a great point I think that's brilliant about the algorithm does the that very thing it does regularize it it does make it you know here's here's you or whatever you know it's kind of like here's you and here's what you like and um, it doesn't it really does uh, minimize our capacity or like our even just our practice and our you know what we what we should kind of make ourselves more regular with is is encountering the other um but when the subjectivity itself has been regularized it's not the other right it's not it closes us off to encountering the other and real difference um i don't know real difference i don't take that technically but you, you know what i mean um and i i think that's interesting because it to me it seems to sort of relate back to the idea of like um your philosophy of timing actually with this idea of exhaustion of the content creator. Um, and actually, I don't know how far you got in the talk with David and Daniel, but it was a really great talk and they got into your, they, uh, Daniel brought up your, your philosophy of timing. And it's sort of like the influencer, it's sort of, it's almost like it's always showtime or like it's always time, right? It, they, I think the, the, the burnout can come from the sense of like, it's always time, you know, it's like, there's, there's always somebody awake in the world at some point, you know, that can be consuming these reels or consuming that or whatever, you know, there's always like, it's always um, because you are kind of influencers often catering to, you know, people all over the world. Like there's always someone who could be getting something more from them of what they, what they produce. And there's sort of a sense of like, it's showtime always, or it's always time instead of it being about it being about timing. Right. And realizing that it's not always time. Sometimes it's time to do something to, to take a pause or not simply about constant show. It's about the, the process of concealing and revealing. 
And that to me seems to have to do more with timing, sensing, getting a sense of the timing for, you know, when, when do you actually want to do the output or when do you want to take a reprieve to just read and research or, you know, things like that. But I feel like that's, that's doesn't really, that's not very regimented. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't, it's so organic if you just leave it up to timing because it has to be discerned by the the particular subjectivity of the person, you know, and yes, that particular subjectivity is still interrelated. I'm saying it's like this, it's very particular. Whereas, you know, just making it be every single day that the person has to do something, that's like a formula. That's, that's regularized. That's, you know, that's um, in a sense, that's more objective. And in some ways they are objectifying their own. There's a type of objectification going on there with that content and not to like, you know, I think there are ways in which the, the term objective, objective, um, objectivity can be redeemed and good. But like, it's interesting because what it seems to deny is the subjectivity itself, you know, and the subjectivity in its fullness, which it seems that in its fullness, in its sustainability, that has to do with timing, not time, <laughs> you know, because it's like, it's not, it can't always be time. But so I think we feel like we have, I wonder, I'm sure there's a pressure for influencers and creators to do, they feel the pressure that it always has to be time, even if they don't want to, even in their, if in their gut, they're like, no, like, I just know, but they feel the pressure of that. And um, yeah, so allowing themselves, allowing ourselves to move into timing, to me, seems like perhaps that could ameliorate that. Perhaps that could ameliorate the burden, the burdensome feeling, because it's now, it's now want for one to sort of discern um, as their work insists or doesn't on being shown, right, or revealed, you know, they may need to conceal and then reveal, you know, so I, I think, I think to me, it, it actually does relate back to, to the philosophy of timing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even to bring up like a, a Nietzschean point here, right, um, you know, Nietzsche's three metamorphoses um, about from the, the camel, to the lion, to the child. Um, you know, why is Nietzsche talking about the overman? Um, I guess in a very Derridian sense, we could actually point out the fact that it's because the overman, we can look at the overman as an actual figure to achieve, or we can look at the overman as a sort of a discourse, a new form of subjectivity that Nietzsche is advocating for. Mm. Whereas God is dead, or the notion of God is dead is that this dominant discourse is no longer viable. It's mm. time to go into a new form of subjectivity. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, post-Christianity has really been playing with this concept. You know, you have Caputo, you have, I think, uh, was it Kearney um, and, and others, even, uh, was it Paul, What's his name? Uh, Paul. Uh, it was his first oh. name. Oh, Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins. Yeah, Peter yeah, Rollins. yeah. Yeah, Peter Rollins. Um, and these these are all thinkers that are entertaining a, a new form of subjectivity in relation to the discourse of God. Really, right. the, the discourse is changing, and because the discourse is changing on God, this allows for a new form of subjectivity to emerge. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, and, 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 it, and it absolutely has to do with timing. It absolutely does. Um, and I think even, I, I did manage to get far enough in Davoud and Daniel's talk where, you know, Davoud was kind of like having reservations about how people at his work just sort of like, you know, this is all their life. You know, this is, mm -hmm. this job is so great. And, you know, I can't imagine anything else or, <laughs> and so on and, and Davout's like you know kind of like shocked you know he's like really like you don't you don't want to like you know just be in the moment and like get away from that you know read a book and entertain some new form of subjectivity basically um but I, I think that is a perfect example of how you entertain uh, you know new forms of subjectivity you don't regularize that specific form you don't take yourself to solely be the man that works at a tech company or something yeah. like that. I, I think there's so much unnecessary, uh, you know, existential anxiety over that um, because 
again, it is kind of a, a matter of when, um, uh, you know, when, when, when those conditions change, you know, what, what happens if, um, you know, somebody passes away in your family and you have to take time off. What, ha what happens if um, you lose, you get laid off? I mean, what then uh, it, but, but all those moments, all those, you know, whether you decided to leave because of, you know, other factors or because you got laid off. I mean, those are addressments. Those are insistence on a new form of subjectivity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. That's really good. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, no, that's really good. And I think too, there's, there seems to be a hand open to that, you know, cause some, you know, because it's new forms of subjectivity is not inherently good or inherently bad, right? It's kind of like, it could be either. <laughs> and you hold your hand open to it and then allow yourself the fluidity of change, you know? Um, but I think that's a really great, a great addition to that idea where it's sort of, um, it seems that the idea of kind of fixing into an identity, <laughs> getting locked in there, regularizing that subjectivity is, is ultimately like, um, you're not really hedging your bets very well, right? Because there, it is a matter of time. And yeah, so anyways, this idea of kind of inventing new forms of subjectivity and engaging in those and being open to those uh, seems to be kind of actually a way to bolster one's own, I don't know, like just kind of allow one to weather, weather the storms of life that come and go, you know, with, the, with those new forms of subjectivity. It's almost like learning on a subjectivity level, like l broadening one's scope or something or like or even ability so that they can weather the change that's inevitable right um so yeah i i think that's great i i'm i'm so i'm so sad i'm gonna have to close up close up the conversation now <laughs> because um i hear like my little ones needing some some attention in the background but um i'm really really thankful we could have the conversation javier and it's been really great and i'm really happy to to kind of press you a bit more on philosophy of timing and it's really been it's really been tremendously helpful for me to rethink things and so yeah, I thank you for that. And yeah, I thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I mean, and, and just to just briefly, like, just kind of like, uh, you know, just echo some of the things that you just said. Uh, yeah, you know, I even look at being a mother as like a new form of subjectivity. And, and what's even more interesting is that when your kids get older, you're going to encounter a new form of subjectivity because they are now older and no longer sort of needing the sort of younger childlike needs so even though you're still their mother you still encounter a new form of subjectivity even within that category yeah that's really that's really great and i i, I you know certainly can heavily relate to that if there's there's a lot of flux right um but i think even if the role itself doesn't insist that that type of flux naturally then i think the best thing we can do is to kind of welcome that you know learn other ways to foster that and develop it ourselves you know um and everyone has that opportunity, I do think, you know, I think Absolutely. so. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, Javier. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your timing, your timing. <laughs> your time and your timing. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. All right. Until next time. Have a good evening. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye.